This episode of Bobby and Jens is sponsored by Hammerhead Karoo 2. Jens, I know we just got these in and I'm starting to play around with it and I'm quite impressed. How are you liking? I do like them a lot actually. It is easy to use and you don't really have to read the manual to understand how it works. It all comes kind of like self-explaining. That's a big plus, a bonus for me. So yes, I do like it a lot. Well, we know that you're not the biggest fan of numbers, but I am. And I love the size of the screen. And my most favorite thing is the exclusive climber with predictive path technology feature. You know, you don't download every single route when you're out there riding. But with this technology, you can actually see the climb coming up and know how far it is to the top, know the, the gradient that you have to deal with. And, and I love that. So all my Strava data can go straight uploaded and I can share it with the entire world. Well, for a limited time, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of the Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code BobbyYens22, all uppercase, at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use promo code BobbyYens22. That's a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Caro 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add both items to your cart, and use the promo code BobbyYens22 today. Actually, when I was younger, we always would go hiking, and um, my family would call me Bear Bait because every time I went on a hike, we'd always run into a bear. Whenever I wasn't there, they didn't run into bears. And so they stopped taking me hiking because they said I was bad luck. <laughs> Born and raised in Alaska, Harvard grad with a degree in computer science and has already worked as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Both of those have to be a Bobby and Jens first. Not to mention a double stage winner in the recent Women's Giro Dona that finished just a few days ago. Today, we sit down with Kristen Faulkner from Team Bike Exchange Jayco, just a few days ahead of the Tour de France Femme. Okay, everyone, we are super stoked to speak with our guest today, coming off two stage wins and the overall QOM jersey in the Giro d'Italia Donna, Riding for the team, Bike Exchange Jayco team, Kristen Faulkner, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on the show. Well, you've been uh, a busy beaver. I mean, the race just got over. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your recovery. But, um, you know, what a race. Tell us about your experience there in, in Italy. Yeah, well, I actually wasn't meant to do the Giro. Um, <laughs> interestingly, um, I was kind of a last minute call up because um, my teammate, unfortunately, was in an accident. So I was filling in for her. Um, and last year, I didn't actually finish the Giro because one of my teammates had COVID last year. So we had to pull out after stage six. So um, the, the the fact that I did the Giro this year um, <laughs> was a big surprise for me. And then actually being able to finish it was also really exciting. So um, yeah, first Giro completed in the books. Um, 
And yeah, everything was a huge surprise. Um, I had no idea going into the time trial that um, I'd be doing well in the prologue. And then, yeah, I was expecting to kind of be in full support mode for my teammates, Braddy, who um, was in was going for GC. And then when she had a pullout for COVID, it kind of opened up some doors for the stage win on, um, on the final stages. And so, um, yeah, everything was a bit of a surprise. And we kind of just rolled with it and tried to make the best of the situation. And um, yeah, it ended up being a really exciting Giro for the whole team. It seemed like it was um, physically quite challenging. There were some tough stages there and some big gaps, like little groups everywhere. Um, was the profile maybe a little too hard or you think it was just really good, just the, how the race developed it all blew into pieces, especially on stage four, I believe, the one that was super hard? Mm. Yeah, actually, um, you know, I think it was, I think the, the race was actually good. The profile was good. I know it's supposed to be a really hard race. Um, and one of the interesting things is when you have so many hard stages, then things might look a certain way early on. But as the days go on and on, people get more and more tired. And actually, there can be a lot more shakeups. Um, stage four was not supposed to be a GC day, interestingly. Um, Anamik just decided to attack and um, she was able to stay away with, with the group of two other people she was with. Um, but yeah, that that was actually a huge surprise, I think, to everyone that stage four ended up being as hard as it was. And then, um, and then, yeah, the final, the final queen stages were, were also really challenging. There was a lot of climbing. Um, but what made them fun and exciting is that they weren't all just one mountaintop finish at the end, you know, just one steady climb. There actually, um, there was a one stage that had two really long climbs, another stage that had three climbs. And so really things could come together. They could stay apart. There could be a breakaway. There could be an attack. And so there were a lot of different ways that the race could go. And I think that's what made it so fun. Um, whereas sometimes in, in other races or even the Giro last year, I think there's one determining stage for GC. That's just one big, you know, mountaintop finish. And that's where the GC is decided. And that wasn't ha what happened this year. And so, um, I think stage four was a surprise and it's always kind of fun when a race can be a surprise because I think that's what makes it exciting. Well, Kristen, you're, you're talking like a seasoned professional, but you only started riding your bike six mm -hmm. years ago. And I will put my hand in the fire here and say that you are our first Harvard... Five, five years ago. Five years ago. <laughs> five but years ago. You, are, you graduated from Harvard in 2016, so I will put my hand in the fire and say that you are the first Harvard graduate that we've had on Bobby and Jens. So congratulations to that. Um, but yeah, you know, tell us, like, man, five years ago, you were in Harvard, and now you're talking about winning the, the prologue of the women's Giro and then winning stage nine. I mean, you were in pink. Like, how did this How did this all happen? I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing when I started doing the research because I've heard things, you know, here and there about how you started and, but I need to hear it from you. Like, how does, how do you go from being a rower in Harvard with a, a, a BA in computer science to being so well-spoken and so, it seems experienced in, in the Giro. <laughs> um, you know, I think, so I, I graduated and I moved to New York city and I picked up cycling the year after I graduated in 20, what was that? 2017. Um, 
And I've always been a competitive athlete. I've always been very full gas at everything I do. And so when I started cycling, I was like, oh, I really like this. Like, I want to be good. And so I really, uh, from the very beginning, was pretty focused on it and just wanting to be as good as I could be. And I didn't really think about too, yeah, what the life of a pro cyclist was at the time. I just knew I wanted to be really good. And so um, for me, it was an outlet outside of work where I could really push myself and challenge myself and yeah, have fun. And I really loved it. And um, yeah, and then I just uh, worked on getting better and better and improving. And then um, I actually think one of the pivotal moments was in the fall of 2020, because um, that year I had joined TIPCO, but there was no racing in the US. And so I didn't have any professional racing experience my first year as a pro. And so TIPCO decided, you know, they could either have me not race at all that year or they could send me to Europe to do the classics, which had been moved to the fall. And the spring classics are not the kind of race that you just jump into with no professional racing experience, but that's what they had me do. So they really threw me into the deep end. And um, me being kind of new to the pro peloton, I I just assumed that it was kind of a sink or swim moment. Like if I don't make it then, then I'm going to be shipped back home and like never invited to Europe ever again. And so <laughs> um, that was in the fall of 2020. And I went into Flanders and um, yeah, a lot of the biggest races, having no clue what, what they were, that they, you know, that they were some of the biggest races. I just knew I had to make it or I wasn't going to, wasn't going to be invited back. And that was the mentality that I had. And um, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I crashed every single race, multiple times per race. The Swanee joke that every time I grabbed a bottle, either the bottle went flying or I went flying. Like I had no idea what I was getting into. And um, yeah, my teammates jokingly made fun of me all the time for being so airheaded. And so, um, but I was determined to at least make it, you know, and and make it in the sense that I didn't want to be kicked off the team, which for me is kind of what I thought was going to happen. Like I really thought this was a sink or swim moment. And so um, I was able to, yeah, survive that. And I think after that, everything just seemed a little bit easier. (laughs) Not easy, but just that being thrust in at such a high caliber and having to be so focused just to survive. Like I, I took that level of focus with me for the rest of my cycling career, which is like I needed to go and so much harder and work and improve so much faster than everyone just to keep up at the same level they were. So I think, yeah, I brought that intensity with me. And um, even now, I think, you know, I went into the season and I wasn't very good at descending. And so I was like, okay, I need to go full gas and get good at descending and cornering. And so I hired a skills coach and every single time I went around a corner in training, if I didn't do it well, I turned around and I did it again. And I did it again and I did it again. So I ended up doing descents like five times in a row during my training sessions. So yeah, I think the fall of 2020 was a pretty pivotal moment and it just added a degree of intensity to where I'm at probably. It kind of laid the laid the groundwork for where I am. So I believe uh, since you're a Harvard um, student or you have a Harvard degree, you're a quick learner. Um, you answered part of my next question already. You coming late into the sport. You think you're there where you want to be with bike handling tactics and whatever the daily routine at the bike race? Or where do you think you could or you should improve still? Or are you pretty happy where you are right now? I mean, don't get me wrong. You had a fantastic last week's fantastic season, like top tens and podiums in almost every race. But you think um, you reached 
your best level or where do you think there's still space for improvement? How would you want to achieve that? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of a lot of room for improvement, um, for sure. I think in all aspects, um, you know, I think my bike handling definitely is something I want to improve a little bit. You know, I'm getting a mountain bike this winter just to help with some of that. Um, my um, my descending, I think, can still get better. You saw Lisa drop me on the descent on, um, I think it was stage eight of the Giro. Um, and so that's something I'm still working on. Um, positioning, I think, is... You know, when races get really hectic and, and girls are really feisty and they start to bump you with their hips and their shoulders. And, um, you know, that's not something I'm used to with American racing because the roads here were big. And as Cat Fives, you know, there was always space on the road. And so um, that makes me a little nervous sometimes. Um, I think, you know, pacing strategies when I give lead outs to my teammates, sometimes I go a little too hard and not hard enough. And so just figuring that out, you know, at the end of races. Um um, with my time trialing, I've never actually been to a wind tunnel. I've never done any arrow testing before, so I'm hoping to do that this year. Um, I've never really spent too much time focusing on my nutrition. Like I think I, I eat pretty healthy, but there's still a lot of improvements I can make, you know, um, in, in how I eat and, and how that affects my performance um, on and off the bike. So I think there's a lot of it's kind of like little improvements in every single area that I'm really focused on. Um, and, and those are the kinds of things that I can practice every single day, you know, day in and day out. It's not, there's not like one thing that I'm all in focused on right now. It's just a lot of micro improvements that I'm trying to make every race and every training session. Well, so, I mean, yeah. Marianne Voss, Annemiek Van Vleuten, Elisa Balsamo, like, they've been doing this for much, much longer than you, right? Uh, we had Elisa Balsamo on the podcast a few months ago, an amazing woman, uh, very, 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 very charming. But like, yeah, you have so much room for improvement. It's kind of, kind of crazy. I mean, you just, you, you don't normally see a woman coming into the sport, like, and then just being able to, to do what you do. And, you know, your, your start, you know, in 2020, you had no other choice, but on the team that you were riding for, I remember the Silicon Valley bank team were very competitive in the online racing. Were you, were you participating mm. in a lot of those events as well? Yeah, actually on Zwift. And I think, um, I think that was also really helpful for me in terms of building my confidence, because even though it's very different from the road, I was able to kind of see how my fitness, you know, fared at least in a, in a relative sense um, um, against other professional riders before I really had to jump into the road. And I think doing well on Zwift gave me the confidence that my fitness was there. I just needed to figure out all the other things that go into biking. But, you know, going in my first year, I didn't know. Like, I had no idea. Like, was I going to even be fit enough to race in Europe? Would I get jobbed by everyone? And these were big questions and, and insecurities I had because I didn't know. And so I think doing the, the Zwift racing, um, it gave me confidence in two areas. I think the first was um, in understanding my fitness level. Um, at least, you know, it's not going to be exact the same as road racing, but it was enough to give me a confidence boost. And then the second was just having, being able to interact with my team through discord in a race in a much lighter way than I would have going 
you know, diving in straight into Europe the way that I did. And so I think e-racing, it almost made the introduction a little bit lighter than it would have been otherwise. I didn't, I mean, I dove into the deep end in the fall, but I dove in, yeah, maybe a little less deep than I would have without e-racing. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was a good intro. So um, talking about when you did uh, dive into the deep end or did it throw you into the deep end uh, that uh, famous <laughs> um, time in 2020 and you crashed more than once, you told us. Um, honestly, now, how often when you lay on the ground, how often did you think, what am I doing? I want to go back and uh, work in New York again. Did that ever cross your mind when you had a bad time, you were dropped or the weather was bad and it was raining? Mm. Did you ever said? I don't know if this is for me. Maybe I go back and uh, to work in, in New York. Um, you know, interestingly, no, like I never regretted my decision. I really liked my job before. Um, there were definitely moments where I felt like I didn't belong there. Like, oh my gosh, I, I'm just not good enough. And I crash every single race. I get a mechanical, I drop my train. I, fall and I break my derailleur, I run into a bush, I run over the mud, I hit someone's wheel, like everything that could possibly happen, I did. Like every single race, I had some kind of mechanical. In fact, the mechanic made sure that my bike was on the outside, on the top of the car, like the easiest to access. And so if I ever needed a bike change, that he knew that mine was the first that he would need. And, um, and one time I went through two bikes because I got a mechanical, they gave me my spare bike, and then I got another mechanical. So they had to give me my teammate's bike and her, her seat post was so much higher that I was actually like standing up, like on the bike, trying to wiggle my way to the finish line. Um, and I was so determined to make it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely made a lot of mistakes and, um, and, um, got a few, a little bit of road rash all over my body, every single race, but I, I never thought it, oh, I need to go home or I don't want to be here. I just thought, wow, this is going to be a lot of work to get to where I want to be. And um, I do think that attitude of, yeah, I just never questioned it. It was like, I never thought, oh, I need to go home. I just thought, okay, what do I need to do next? What do I need to do next? Okay, I'm going to go do that so that I can come back tomorrow a little bit better, a little bit better. And I just hope that by the end of the season, I'd be good enough to stay. <laughs> um And yeah, I think that attitude really helped me because I definitely never gave up, even when I was technically, and from a bike handling standpoint, the worst rider out there in the peloton, like by a landslide. Like uh, there was a girl on Human Powered Health, which used to be Rally, and um, she came up to me in 2021 after I won a stage at the Tour of Norway, and she goes, yeah, we had a rule on our team that no one was allowed to follow your wheel last year because you just had such a bad wheel to follow. But you've really improved and you've come so far in a year. And I think, you know, she's actually like a nice person and she didn't mean it to be mean. But it was there was a lot of honesty in what she said, which is like, I yeah, I wouldn't have followed me either in 2020. But um, it like meant so much to me to to make it that I made sure that by the next year I came back and that was a safer wheel to follow. And now I'm a safer wheel to follow. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But we all went through that phase, that awkward phase. But we went through that phase when <laughs> we were 17, 18, 19 years old. You're doing it in your mid-20s in a sport like well away from your home country. I'm curious because it does exist in men's cycling, but is there a little bit of a pecking order 
in in women's cycling as well or are you kind of taken in with open arms and everyone's nice to each other because i knew i remember there was there were some guys that were brutal to the people that crashed a lot the 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 new riders but how how have you been accepted into the peloton with this meteoric rise not to mention your most amazing backup plan i mean you're a harvard graduate and and you work in silicon valley or you worked in silicon valley what um what's it like in the women's peloton is it that you can share with us from that yeah, aspect I- yeah, it's definitely gotten a lot better. I mean, in the beginning, girls are mean. Girl, and people will always be mean. And it doesn't come from, I don't think it comes from a place of malice. I think everyone just wants to feel safe, you know, and everyone wants to feel comfortable. And if there's a rider that gives you any kind of concern that she might not be, then you're not going to want her there, you know. And, and I think it's a defensive thing. And I don't think it's a bad thing inherently. Like, we all want to have a safe Peloton. Um, and But yeah, you know, there were... There were girls that were really mean, and um, I kind of just had to brush it off because I knew that if I just worked and that I would get to a place where I could earn their respect and, and get the results I wanted. And I also knew that they were right, you know, in a lot of ways. Like, they weren't right to be mean, but they were right about the feedback they gave me, which is like, you know, <laughs> like, follow your line and don't break on the corners. Like, all these little things that I was doing that I shouldn't have been doing. And so I had to just really not take it personally and you know it's when I had to make a distinction between it's not me that they don't like it's just my writing you know and um and I had to really yeah make it not personal and um actually there was a girl on my team who had probably the best bike handling skills on the team and she was the meanest to me when I started because um to her she just like didn't understand how I could be so bad um and um so she would make comments to me all the time and, and I was pretty sensitive. Um, and so I had a really hard time getting along with her in the beginning, but in the end she ended up being my favorite teammate because she was the one that helped me grow the most. Cause she was always giving me feedback and, um, always telling me how it could be better. And to this day, she's the writer that, um, I get the most feedback from and how I can improve. And I know it comes from a good place. And so, um, yeah, now she's, yeah, probably, you know, I don't want to say my favorite teammate, you know, I don't want to make favorites, but um, she's been the best mentor to me on the road for sure. Like in my entire cycling career, just because she's the one that she always points things out to me. And she knows that when she does, I respond and do the best I can to fix the mistakes that I'm making. So with with your start into cycling, what would be just on top of your head, your advice for somebody new coming into, uh, into the sport? Somebody like you who started um, relatively late the sport, what would you say, hey, do maybe one year in the U.S. Uh, cat four amateur or cat two amateur or try esports first or any advice you would have for the young girls following your footsteps? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to go on a lot of group rides. Um, when I started cycling, I was so focused on my fitness. I just thought that if I was really fit, then I would make it. And so I focused on training and I thought, Oh, if I go on a group ride, maybe I'm not going to get my perfect, you know, training workout in. And, um, I think, um, that was a big mistake. And I wish that I had done way more group rides all the time, as many as I could, because it's the bike handling skills, it's riding with other people. It's just maneuvering around other, other bikes. It's people pointing things out that you might miss about your own riding style. 
Um, it's making mentors who, you know, you can follow people's line down hills and um, people who want to support you, people you can ask questions to. Um, and that's how I met Linda Jackson, actually, was I went on a group ride and someone knew her who was on the ride and they were like, Linda, this girl's really strong. You need to meet her. And so I think that community aspect of cycling um, and, and group rides really helps with the technical aspects of things with learning and then also just, yeah, the community aspect. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is I would say do a lot of crit racing just because it's that really fast paced, really tight kind of quarters environment that you have on the road in Europe and um, get out on a gravel bike, get out on a mountain bike, all those things that help with your bike handling skills, I think are really important. Um, and then the third thing I would say, yeah, the biggest thing by far is to just always be open to learning, especially if you're coming to the sport really late. Like you have to be really humble and not take things, anything personally, and just know that the only way you're going to get better is by asking for help and asking to get better. And people do, I think, you know, if you show you're willing to learn, I think people do want to help, um, you know. And so, yeah, just being as humble as you can and, and asking for help about things. Um, I definitely asked for a lot of help when I was learning, not in the very beginning. But then once I started asking for help, I was like, wow, I really needed that. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah. take it from me. I recently got a uh, got schooled in the art of checking your ego at the door because I entered a mountain bike stage race with my friend George Hincapie. We did the Pisgah, Pisgah mountain bike stage race. And I kind of figured the same thing. Like, you know, I'm kind of fit, you know, I can prop, I've ridden a mountain bike before, but man, going down those descents, I realized I have no business being here. And the people at the, mm. at the start were yelling at me because it was the first stage. And I'm like, man, just, I, I'm sorry, let me get out of your way. But then gradually, like as they were flying by me at Mach 5, they'd be like, relax your arms or do this or do that. I'm like, um, mm. I don't think I'm going to learn anything new at, at 50. But it is I, I like what you said there um, a, about asking for help, you know, and, and being open mm. to, to criticism. I, I mean, that's the way you learn. And there is so much mm -hmm. information and so much experience if you if you ask for it. But to, to the new riders out there or to the riders that have an issue, technical issue, tactical issue, nutritional issue, don't just think you know everything. You know, when you're, when you're weak, you ask for help. When you're strong, you offer it. And I think there are so many people that because you're in Lycra and, you know, that competitive ego thing is there that everyone kind of goes into their little box. But once you can kind of just open a little tiny side of that box, you'll find people that are willing to help. And I think the best teachers are the people that are out there doing it with you. You just need to check your ego enough and, and ask them for that sort of help. So, <laughs> man, that's, uh, yeah. that's great news. That's great news. But, hey, listen, <laughs> I need to ask you because you just got done with the Giro, and we want to start talking about the Tour de France. How is your recovery going? I mean, that was a big block. You did the Tour de Suisse and then the Giro, and you were second overall in the Tour de Suisse, and you won two stages in the Giro. I imagine that you have big expectations for the Tour de France femme, correct? And I'm wondering how you're kind of dealing with your, you know, you've, you've noted that you have limited experience, that that rest period, 
that taper period, but at that so same time, kind of keeping the motor running period for, for the Tour de France. How are you feeling right now? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think oftentimes we talk a lot about physical fitness and physical recovery, and so much of it is mental. Um, and just like making sure that I have that mental recovery as well, because it is like I did um, a big walker racing in May, and then I did the women's tour in June, and then yeah, Swiss and then and then Giro. Um, and so much of it is like, go, 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 like these really, really intense days racing. And for me, I found that there's a few things that I do to really help. Um, the first is like, while I'm racing, um, you know, in between stages in the evening, like, I personally need a lot of alone time, like I need to decompress. And I do that at the Giro, like as soon as the stage race is done, like I need an hour of like listening to quiet music or calling someone back home where I can just completely decompress. And every single night I did that and it allowed me to get ahead of the mental fatigue so that I didn't, like I wasn't as drained by the end of the Giro. Um, and the same thing when I come home after the Giro, I have um, a few days of just really easy riding. I don't look at my power numbers. I can go out for three hours. I can go out for an hour. I can do whatever I want really for kind of five days. My coach is giving me the range to just do whatever feels good. <laughs> Um, and then maybe I start doing a little bit of just light intensity at the end of the week, um, for a few days. Um, and then, yeah, I start to taper again for the tour. So there's, yeah, the physical element and the, and the emotional element. Um, but mentally I'm trying to just like, yeah, do nothing stressful in my life right now. If I want to see friends, I see friends. If I want to go to bed early, I go to bed early. It's really just about trying to not get too much stimulation or adrenaline during these two weeks. Um, and then making time for fun rides. Cause for me, um, I personally love getting out my bike. I love being in the sun and what I get burned out from is not actually riding my bike. It's, it's the mental fatigue. And my coach and I have seen that over years that physically I can handle a lot more, but mo like a mentally it's the go, 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 go. If I don't, take a break like that's what really cracks me eventually so i've learned to have to really focus on that mental recovery as part of my training if you want to get more out of your free time sign up to outside plus for less than a dollar a week you can get six print and digital issues of peloton magazine exclusive membership content from bellenews.com access all the premium content from the whole outside family including yoga journal backpacker ski outside magazine and many others and that's not all there are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events access to gaia gps and trail forks as well as virtual health and fitness courses it's 350 dollars of value in one 99 annual subscription but If you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you will receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our chat with Kristen. So, quick, funny question in between here. Since the Giro stopped and you needed also mental recovery, have you been a rebel and did you go to the bad, bad, bad ice cream? Did you did you actually enjoy a little bit of ice cream? Because I know at us, they always told us, no, ice cream is so bad for you. <laughs> did you have ice cream? 
Oh yeah. Yeah, I had pizza. Oh, I had fantastic. Ice cream. Yeah. I love you. I had... Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think like yeah, I don't go overboard, but yeah, if you want gelato, have some gelato. You know, it's ninety eight degrees outside right now, so I'm gonna have some gelato and um yeah, if I want a baguette and loaf of bread, I'm gonna have some bread. Yeah, I mean I think you know, everything is um yeah, I'm still working out every day. Like I I think so much of it again, I'm I'm in this for the long term, right? Like if I skip out on the ice cream, maybe I'll do extra well at the Tour de France, but then I'll crack, you know, and I'll crack before the end of the season and I won't do well at Worlds or I won't do well at my next races. And I think if I have one race, you know, all year and that's the only thing I'm aiming for, then yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'd skip a gelato before, I don't know. But for me, I'm still, I'm still growing so much in the sport and the last thing I want is to crack halfway through my season when I have so much growth for the second half of the season that I can still go through. And I still love the sport. You know, I don't, I'm not burned out. I don't hate cycling yet. And, and I want to keep that freshness alive as long as I can. And so for me, um, yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about like nutrition earlier and um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm mindful. I'm not super strict because it's the kind of thing that for me, if I'm too strict with nutrition, I'm going to crack mentally. And I know that about myself. And so it's something I have to think about and do like and manage in a re- really long term and sustainable in a really slow way. And so, yeah, I think so much of training and, and racing at a high level is figuring out what are the things that like, what are the little kind of cheats you need for yourself to keep you mentally healthy? And at what point are you going to crack if you're too intense? And, um, and I think that's like not something, and it can change every year. Like I can be maybe more strict now with myself than I would have been last year because last year I was dealing with all the stress of coming to a new country and a new peloton and all the stress of racing. And so now I can take on a bit more emotional stress than I may have last year. So yeah, I think so much of, of racing and just existing at, at a really um, high stress level is is knowing those things about myself and managing them. And it, it- Obviously, you've yeah. stated, you know, and we've talked about your your meteoric rise in this sport, and you've come into the sport of cycling when women's the women's side of the sport has grown immensely. And I have a question, and and I hope I I word it correctly. In the men's peloton, there's a huge issue with a stressor to to be skinny: watts per kilogram, nutrition. And you mentioned that you're looking at your nutrition, but is there a pressure, um, intrinsic pressure from the sport of cycling itself in the women's peloton where you feel a, a, a pressure to be skinny, um, to be light, to not eat what you want? Because we know that exists in the men's peloton, but I'm, I'm curious, you walking into the sport so, so late, um, what what are your takes on on that whole um, stressor around being light and maybe even to the extreme some eating disorder issues? Yeah, it definitely exists in the women's peloton. It's very strong and alive, and, and you see it. Um, I think because I started so late, I just came from a very different approach to cycling. Like it wasn't drilled into me from a young age that I need to be super skinny. It was like I need to be healthy and strong, and I come in and that's the attitude I have. And I don't feel like it hasn't been drilled into me for, for decades, you know, that I need to have a certain body image. And so I don't actually believe that. And, um, I'm a lot, 
I'm able to be much more independent minded about it because I'm coming in as an outsider. And so, yeah, my team always jokes that like, I always like, if I'm hung, like, you don't want to see me hungry. Like if Kristen's hungry, it's going to be a bad day for everyone. So like I, you know, the snack, (laughs) I always have a snack with me. And, um, so I think there's a few things. I think the first is, um, yeah, coming in, I was older and thus a little bit more mature than, than maybe a 14 year old, right. When I came into the sport and was subject to some of these cultural norms. Right. And so, um, I was able to, to kind of make my own decisions around food. Um, I acknowledge that, yeah, if I wanted to be faster on the climbs next year, I could lose weight. Um, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't like affect my sense of self worth as a rider. It's like, okay, here are some things I need to do to be better. I could work on my descending. I could work on my cornering. I could work on my weight. I could work on my technical bike handling skills. Like it's one of 20 things I could work on. And it's just a matter of like, what do I want to work on? (laughs) And, um, if I do want to lose weight, it's going to be with a nutritionist. It's going to be on my terms and my timeline and and the same with the other things I need to work on. So that's the approach that I take. Um, I think the other factor with women that's a little bit different from men is just that, um, if we are way too strict about our diet, like we also lose our menstrual cycle. And so for a lot of women, that's something that is kind of a caliber, like, am I in the danger zone or not? And in some ways that can be good and bad because it's more dangerous if we're unhealthy, but it can be good because, um, we kind of have that red flag, right. That men might not have. And, and so it can tell us like, okay, yeah, we need to stop there. Um, I'm not at that point. I haven't been close to that point, but I think a lot of women have and, um, and, and have had to actually stop the sport for that reason. So, um, to answer your question in short, like, yes, the pressure exists, but it doesn't mean you have to, it doesn't mean you have to buy into it in a way that's going to be unhealthy. Um, you know, physics works the same for men and women in, in, in the sense that like watts per kilo, watts per kilo. So if it helps men, it helps women, but only if you're able to stay strong and, and also mentally strong too. Like if you're cracked from eating lettuce all day long, then you're not going to ride well. You're not going to be happy. So yeah, that's my, that's my, that's my approach is like, yeah. And, and I surround myself with people who have that same belief. Like my coach knows that he can only push me so far. And when it comes to nutrition, my, my DS knows, you know, my nutritionist on the team, like she knows that I'm, if I don't like the plan, I'm not going to follow it. And that's just, <laughs> that's just how I am. So. We had examples like uh, Kristen Armstrong or now auch Lissy Dainyang. They um, become pregnant, give birth, come back and they be good again. Is that easier now in modern women's cycling? Because I believe maybe 10 years ago, that was the end of your career. If you get pregnant as a female cyclist, I don't think they would wait a year for you. Is that better or still like impossible or super difficult? What's your feeling about that? Like maternity leave, basically? Yeah, I think there's um, I think there's two things that are changing. Um, I think the first is that in the past, there was this very outdated idea that if you gave birth, there was no way you would ever be strong again. Like you wouldn't be valuable as a rider. And so I think having people like Lizzie Dagnan and Kristen Armstrong showing that they can be the best in the world, like Lizzie won Paris-Roubaix, she's won Fluid, like she's won so many races since giving birth. Um, And she's able to show, actually, that's not true. Like women can be really strong and come back at the top of the game. And so I think that does a few things. Um, a, it just disbands a lot of beliefs about, that people might have about women's bodies. Um, but but two, it shows like they're not only good, but they're valuable to the team, you know. And and so at the end of the day, if you're winning races, teams are going to want you. 
Um, so there's a very practical side to it. Um, and then I think the second element is a bit more cultural, which is that um, people are starting to come to terms with the fact that maternity leave in sport is not that different from maternity leave in um, a desk job. And then if you're away and you come back, then that's just kind of the right thing to do culturally. Like we, <laughs> we're women, we have families. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's not different. Like no one would ever question like, oh, a man has a two-year-old at home. Like, I don't know if he can be a good cyclist on the team. It's like, okay, but if a woman has a two-year-old at home, like <laughs> she's she's parenting the child just as much as the, you know, the dad who has a two-year-old. So um, I think there's a lot of cultural uh, differences as well. And, and this attitude that, you know, it's not just women who raise kids and um, the maternity aspect is, is um, yeah, that's part of what happens in society. Like we need families in order to reproduce as a, as a society. And <laughs> if we want to leave to do that and come back, then um, that's kind of their right as, as a, as a employee. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's the pra- practical element and then also like a cultural shift that's happening in people's attitudes around parenting. Well, now let's get to the good stuff again. Um, there's a huge moment for women's cycling just around the corner. Uh, July 24th through the 31st is the women's eight day Tour de France femme. What do you think of the course this year? I mean, how cool is it that you guys are going to be starting in Paris on the Champs-Élysées and then finishing eight days later on the Planche de Belfi? So you, you're the super Planche de Belfi. You actually go all the way up to the top on the, on the dirt as well. Man, for, for a newbie into the sport, this must be an absolute dream come true to get to do the Giro and then the, finally an eight-day Tour de France for, for women. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's definitely a dream come true for me. And this is, yeah, my, what, third, fourth year? In the sec- third year? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> a year in the sport. Um, <clears throat> and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly excited. I think it's been a lot of work, um, not just from the organization and, and cyclists and stuff, but also um, all, like, the women who came before and generations of women who came before that fought for this to happen. Um, I'm extremely excited. I think the course is going to be really interesting this year because, um, well, I think the GC stages are all kind of towards the end for the most part, at least on paper. And so, um, you know, if someone's not sure if they're a GC contender or it's like they still might not be allowed to go for stages because the group might not let them go because they could still be a risk for the final stage. And so um, that's a bit different than what we had at the Giro, for example, where stage four was, wasn't supposed to be, but it ended up being a GC day. And so then a rider like myself, um, you know, was able to go for stages later. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens at the tour because, um, yeah, some, some riders might not be able to, to go for stages if there's like a potential threat for GC, even if they aren't going for GC. Um, so that's interesting. Um, there's a little bit of gravel this year. Um, yeah. And, um, I think especially that we're starting the same day that the men, finish I think is also really great because there's just going to be a lot of media around the start of the tour anyway so um all in all I'm really excited for it my parents are coming all the way from Alaska to watch it so for me that's a really big personal um uh, moment for me just they've never seen me race in Europe and um they haven't been able to come over for health reasons for for a while and they're making the trip over so I'm really excited and I can tell you um, currently I'm working for Eurosport Germany commentating Mm. on the Tour de France 
and we will cover the women's sort of francs right from day one every day so you will get media coverage like probably like never before it will be fantastic mm. um the women's tour de france stage five hundred sixty seven kilometers i don't know how much it is in miles would that be your longest day ever on the bike or your longest race ever since you only like two and a half years into the professional world of cycling 176 that's a good question um i don't know if it's my longest race it's definitely not my longest ride um but i think yeah it could be up there with one of the longest races i'm trying to think of any other races that would be yeah some of the classics might be i'd be interested from like a time standpoint as well because it's not just the kilometers you know it's also like how long is the race from a duration standpoint um and yeah there, there's a decent amount of climbing in the race as well i think what do you say 1700 meters um uh, that yeah. one actually uh, i think it's more like a flat like a sprint eddy but it's just long it's almost 180 kilometers so what is that 115 miles maybe bobby ish stage five i think has 17. no i oh yeah. i think if it's flatter i think yeah it shouldn't be too bad you know because the pace won't necessarily be crazy People won't be fighting, but um, yeah, I think if it's long, it just one thing it does is it creates a lot of fatigue going into some of the climbing stages. And so if you're someone who's um, really petite and struggles on some of the flatter stages um, and it doesn't have the strength to get through those really long days, then you might be a climber on paper, but then come the end of the tour when everyone's really tired and it might be actually harder for you to do well in the climbs. And so I think what having these really long stages does um, and, and harder stages is it just tosses things up a bit because, you know, one of the nice things I like about tours is that you might be a really great sprinter on fresh legs or you might be a really great climber on fresh legs. But at the end of the stage, no one has fresh legs. And so what kind of rider are you on tired legs? And um, I actually think for me, like I'm not a great climber or I'm not like a pure climber on fresh legs. I'm not a sprinter on fresh legs. And my asset as a cyclist is that I can do well on tired legs, like, you know, rel like I, I fatigue a little less than relative to everyone. And so I can be a little better climber and a little better sprinter towards the end of a, a long race, um, which is why I really like the classics. Um, but I think we'll see that dynamic play out a bit in the tour just because they do have um, some longer stages going into, you know, early on um, before these big GC days. So. I think it'll create an interesting dynamic and we'll, I'm excited to see a how A quick follow-up question. Today we had Lisa Brennau as a guest uh, for our Tour de France uh, um, broadcasting. And I asked her about Super Planche de Belfi and she said, well, I told the mechanics to bring everything they have because it's 20 plus um, gradient, the, 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 the slope. So she thinks about maybe 36, 32. 36 chain ring and a 30 sprocket and did you ever sort a ball already or it's too far in the future for you it's a little too far in the future um but yeah i mean she she has some good points i definitely noticed so i changed my cassette going into the final stages on the the queen stage the stage i won um that i i didn't have that on stage four and i really i wish i'd had that on stage because stage four was actually it ended up being a pretty contentious day on the really steep climb when Anamika attacked. I didn't have um, uh, as large of a cassette in the back that I would have liked. And I noticed it, um, especially towards the end of that day when I was really struggling. Um, and so and then I, I got a larger cassette for the, the final days. Um, and I noticed a really big difference. So 
I definitely, it's definitely something that we'll discuss with our mechanic going to each stage and making sure that we tailor it to the stage because, um, yeah, every rider is a little different. Um, and every rider has also their preferred cadence. I tend to ride a really high cadence when I ride. Um, you could probably see it on TV. It's like really high compared to most riders. Uh, but that works for me. And so as a result, like I need a slightly bigger cassette than what people might think given that I'm like very muscular and they might think I'm more of a strength rider, but I actually prefer a high cadence. So yeah. Spin to win. We'll Spin to win. <laughs> <laughs> so besides the the simple fact that you're going to be on the, one of the most famous boulevards in the world in your first women's tour de France, the Champs-Élysées. What else do you expect from this little bike tour with friends around France in, in July? Yeah, I, I think, um, well, I, there's going to be a lot of hype going into it. So um, I guess there's two things that, that I'm trying to be aware of. Um, the first is I think the race is actually going to be pretty hectic the first two days. I think everyone's going to go in with a lot of energy, a lot of hype. I think the first two stages could be a little dangerous, like if everyone's just really um, frantic on the road, um, actually. Uh, everyone wants to get in the break. Everyone wants to be the rider out front. Everyone wants to just, yeah, there's going to be so much adrenaline there. Um, and so it's just for me making sure that I stay calm and I race my own race and I'm you know, in my own head and, and not um, caught up in, in the, not too caught up in the energy and adrenaline of the day because, you know, things, bad things can happen. Um, when you lose that focus. Um, and the second thing is just, there's going to be a lot more media than I think we've ever had in women's cycling. And so a lot of people wanting interviews, a lot of cameras, a lot of photos, a lot of autographs, things that we haven't had as much of before. And I think that can be really mentally exhausting for a lot of riders. And I think, um, riders might be really excited about it and, and they want that media attention. Um, but it can, it can be detrimental if, if you get caught up in it when you have, seven days or eight days of really hard racing in front of you. And so for me, um, I'm actually trying to do a little bit of media before so that during the race, I don't have to do any because I just want to focus on racing. Um, and I mean, yeah, there'll be some, but uh, like, yeah, there needs, to, there needs to be like a good balance. And so, um, yeah, I think those are two things. Um, the fans, I think are going to be really exciting to have a lot more fans than normal. Um, I probably won't notice the scenery too much, to be honest. <laughs> It'll be exciting um, <clears throat> starting in Paris, but I'll probably be so focused on the race ahead I won't even notice some of the things happening around me. Um, and then I guess the last thing is that, um, you know, for a lot of the best riders in the world, like this is the race they're targeting all year and have been targeting. You know, it's kind of like an, an Olympic cycle. It's like it happens every few years, like a race this big, right? And so um, I think you'll see a lot of riders on their tip-top form and really giving everything they have. And I think that will make for some really awesome bike racing because there's going to be a lot of strength and a lot of grit and people just not wanting to give up. And yeah, so I think that'll make for some fun, exciting racing. So what would make the upcoming Women's Tour de France a good race for you? And what would it take to make it a great race for you what do you expect for yourself what are you aiming at what are you hoping for and for you and maybe also for the team mm. well we actually have three really great gc candidates on our team um Anes and Testaban and Spratty and, and myself um who all could do well and so I think being able to play the game with all three of us is something I'm really excited about because we haven't had a race with the three of us in a while and um you know cycling is partially a race, partially a game. And my favorite part of it is when it becomes a game. And when you have multiple riders who can, who can play off of each other. 
So for me personally, I'm just excited for that aspect of it. Just having yeah a strong team, like our strongest team there for this course. And, and I would love to be able to just play that game out there by having multiple cards. Um, so that's one thing I'm really excited about. Um, the second thing is I haven't had a chance to really see how I can climb against a lot of the best climbers, like on a personal level. Um, I started out the Giro and in, in a support role for our, my teammates, Braddy. And, um, and before that I was in a support role at the women's tour and then, um, yeah, tour de Swiss, a lot of them weren't there. And so for me, um, like even starting on the stage four, being in the wind on that first climb and, and. Um, then in the later stages, I was kind of out by myself. And so I really am excited to just kind of go head to head with some of these really strong women and just see, cause for me, like no matter how it goes, it's just going to be exciting to be there and to see what I can do, um, on a personal level. Um, and then kind of on that similar note, I guess, um, yeah, seeing how I do on tired legs at the end of the, at the end of the race. Um, and uh, yeah, goals for our team. Um, we'll be going for both GCN stages, which I am excited about because we have some really strong sprinters coming and some good all-rounders and then also some good climbers. And so um, we'll definitely have a lot of um, shots on goal as a team as well. So, yeah. And and I love attacking. You know, I love being aggressive. I love making the race fun. So I'm hoping to be able to do that at some point during the race as well. Just, you know, do my thing. Just a little clarification um, for our uh, listeners. Spready is Amanda Spread, your team captain, Australian mm. cyclist, three times winner of the Tour Down Under and a pretty good climber. So that's Spready is Amanda yes. Spread for our listeners to understand. Yes, apologies. I should have clarified that. I actually, I called her Amanda the first time I met her and she was like, no, no, you cannot call me Amanda. <laughs> so I forget now that I need to call her Amanda um, in public. <laughs> Well, it's going to be fantastic. The sport of women's uh, cycling absolutely deserves this. It's been a long time since you guys have been in the spot like this. We wish you the best of luck and just a little bit of inside information. We know that you're coming in hot after the Giro and you have two stage wins and the way that you said, oh, the, the queen stage, the one that I won. You know, you're going in with confidence, but we're going to give you a little bit extra confidence because... We have the mojo. You come on our podcast, good things happen. So I want you to, you know, buckle that, that chin strap on the helmet a little bit looser because you're going to be hitting the wind and you're going to have a great race and it's going to be fantastic for the entire sport of women's cycling. So good luck, be safe, and yellow jersey maybe? Never say <laughs> never. <laughs> We wouldn't we wouldn't be going if we didn't if we didn't hope to be wearing the yellow jersey at some point. So um, hopefully at the end. But yes. <laughs> well, Kristen, we'll let you get back to your recovery and your alone time. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time, and uh, hopefully you get credit for that with your team as far as the media obligations for the tour, and you can have a little bit more alone time in the tour. But thank you so much for coming on, Bobby and Jens. You were a pleasure, absolute pleasure to speak with. Thank you both so much. And it's great to meet you. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing the podcast live. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, folks. Huge thanks to Kristen for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. 
The show, as always, was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Mosa. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. Mm-hmm.